Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is one-third of both Continue on YouTube and the podcast Goosebuds. Paul Ritchie is here. How's it going, Paul? Hello. I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. We're thrilled to have you here. Um, now, is horror something you're into, by and large? Because I know... You know, in your Evil Dead game episodes, you had some references to pull, and obviously you've got a whole podcast about a series of horror books, but is it something that you explore on your own time in terms of, like, games or movies? So, I wasn't really huge into horror for a while, um, but I recently have kind of gotten into it, because I think there's kind of a new crop, right, of, of horror movies that and, and horror directors that have come up recently. Yeah, there's definitely a new wave that's really exciting, and I think it's a little more cerebral than i remember not to say that there weren't cerebral horror movies before but i don't know no, but it was definitely more kind of an exploitation kind of vibe in terms of the saws and the mm -hmm. hostels yes. and that kind of thing yes and i grew up in the era of slashers uh, right i think we both <laughs> we grew up in the era of slashers and like i'll i'll be honest and this is going to be a recurring theme for this episode i was a scared little boy and same, same. <laughs> it's cool good good we're on the same page then <laughs> chucky devastated me uh, uh i was ter terrified of jason terrified of freddy and that kind of pushed me away from horror for a while i was an action movie boy so getting older get, getting a little older and getting a little bit of a control over my fears <laughs> i was able to uh to kind of come to terms with that and now i i actually really like it i like it to be scared but in a cerebral way that's awesome and it's funny that you talk about you know, growing up and feeling that way because I really enjoy Goosebuds and it really brings me back to growing up and being so excited to get the books at the Scholastic Book Fairs. Yes. But I didn't, it didn't re like click for me until I heard you guys talk about how the cliffhangers at the end of every chapter wind up not actually being anything. Right. And I was like, this is what made them perfect for a cowardly little yes. boy like me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Dude, that's what I was so scared of Goosebumps books when I first saw them because the covers, as you know, yep. were terrifying. Right. But um, it's like the art in uh, the scary stories to tell yes. the dark stuff. Now, and right? those That's stories, way those stories were super scary too. Like the, right. the art was scary, the stories were scary. But Goosebumps, yeah. you read one and you're like, this, there's nothing scary about this. <laughs> it made you feel powerful. Yeah, it did. It definitely did. It was the one one glimpse into the world of horror that I could handle. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, in terms of in terms of video games, I am also a coward. Uh, I actually I was playing Resident Evil Two, the remake, mm -hmm. and I got to the part where Nemesis shows up, and I literally stopped playing the game because I was like, <laughs> I can't handle this stress. <laughs> no, when you're when you're actually playing the game, it's so much more stressful oh. than watching a movie, mm -mm -mm. <laughs> like a thousand times. Definitely. So obviously there was the Goosebumps TV show, yeah. but I'm curious if you think any of the stories would make a good serious horror movie if it was handled right. Oh handled my god. Budget. That's a great question. I mean, I guess I could go through the the books and think about, jeez, oh, there's so many of them. I feel like um jeez, I'm going to pull up a list real quick because I I need sure. to So, I'll say I'll say the two that I think. Okay. But while you while you mull it over. Please. Um The Haunted Mask, I think could be a really fun kind of Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. Yes, yeah. And you know, listening to your episode about Say Cheese and Die, I really was like Man, I think that this might be way worse than I remember, but it really stuck with me as a kid, just the concept of it. Yeah. And so I think that if you took that concept and kind of left everything else to the curb. Yeah. Well, it's like, um, uh, what's the movie where they die? They all die eventually. Um, where you get Final Destination. Final Destination. It's like Final Destination, yeah. except you can point the curse at somebody <laughs> and cause it to happen. It's really terrifying. Yeah. And what if someone evil gets that, you know? Uh-huh, exactly. Uh, okay, I'll just say what I know. Uh, it's the obvious one. I'm such an idiot. I should have said this right off the bat. Night of the Living Dummy. Oh, Although, that's a good one. I guess that's just Chucky, <laughs> but that was such a scary thing to me that I yeah, think that well, would be... I I also think that the fact that uh, it's a ventriloquist thing adds mm -hmm. a little something extra to it, a little juice to it. Yeah, that old-timey doll is real scary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one, or I think any of the, the camp books were always ones that turned out to be good books of the Goosebumps right. series. And there was the first one, uh, I can't remember the name I'm looking through right now. I'll, I'll find it at some point. But uh, one of the first, Camp Nightmare. Camp Nightmare. Nightmare. That one was scary. Uh, I remember that one actually being pretty scary, and I, I feel like it had a nice twist at the end, which I don't want to spoil for the listeners. I want them to be able to go read it themselves. <laughs> but that um, one could be yeah, good. Yeah, it is a fun twist, though. I And I, you know, definitely people should check that one out because, like you said, those are definitely the ones that do actually uh, still have a little something to them. Yes, yes. 
leaving Goosebumps behind, the movie that we're talking about today is uh, 1997's David Lynch movie Lost Highway, starring Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette. This is a really interesting choice to me. Um, I had not seen it. I actually had pretty limited exposure to David Lynch prior to this. Um, I had seen season one of Twin Peaks and liked it. And I'd seen Eraserhead and liked it. And I had just seen Wild at Heart and loved it. I haven't seen Wild at Heart yet. That's like the next. I actually have the. Or no, I'm sorry. I have Inland Empire on DVD. But Wild at Heart's the one I'm going to watch after that. Yeah, it, I mean, it blew me away. It really, I feel like I turned a corner on David Lynch with that movie. And great. I was really excited when you picked this one because I was like, great, I get to continue this dive in. Yes. And hopefully it works. And you know what? It sure as hell did. This movie kicks ass. You like it? You like it? I loved it. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Oh, great. I'm so, I was watching it last night in preparation for this and I was like, oh, George might hate this. Uh-oh. No, 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 no. I loved it. Okay, good. And so the title. Lost Highway comes from the book Night People by Barry Gifford, Mm -hmm. who actually co-wrote this with David Lynch after Lynch was like, hey, that would make a good movie title. (laughs) Right. As as simple as that. Yep. (laughs) And Lynch claims that the inspiration for the story comes from an instance of an unknown guy saying Dick Laurent is dead into the front door intercom of Lynch's own home. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Oh, that's awesome. So a real life thing. And he also thinks that he was uh, subconsciously influenced by the O.J. Simpson trial. So thanks, Juice. (laughs) Oh, dude, there's... uh, Yeah, now that you say that, I'm like, yeah, okay. The final scene of that movie is like... Oh, yeah. 100% that. Yeah. (laughs) Holy shit. And uh, Barry Gifford summarized the film as being double indemnity meets Orpheus and uh, I can never pronounce his name. uh, Eurydice. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. The Orpheus story. Yes. I think that's very apt. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's really just the way that those two things blend. It doesn't feel like they would, but. The movie has a primal Greek-like horror to it, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's just like this like. And I don't want to sp- go, jump too far ahead, but it has this primal terror inside of it that I think Absolutely. is it's like has been inside of human minds for pretty much our entire existence. This kind of exploration of human nightmares and uh, mm-hmm. and kind of the dark side of humanity is not something that was new for uh, for David Lynch, but. People at this time, I mean, this was coming off of uh, Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me, Mm -hmm. uh, the movie, which was a commercial and critical flop, although it has gotten kind of a re-examination in more recent years. I'll say as a a recent, like I just recently turned on to Lynch in terms of liking him. I've always appreciated him and respected him, but it took until like in the past like five years, I've really started to appreciate him. Not a fan of Fire Walk With Me. But the trend continued with pretty negative reviews for this movie as well. Yeah. Including Siskel and Ebert both giving the film a thumbs down, which led to Lynch calling their verdict two more reasons to come see Lost (laughs) It's such a great rebuttal. What a great (laughs) rebuttal. Roger Roger Ebert in his uh, personal essay, did you read it by any chance, his review of this movie? No, I didn't. He refers to this movie as a shaggy ghost story, which I think is hilarious. And you know what? Listen, Ebert, he, I kind of fluctuate on him in Mm -hmm. terms of... I kind of appreciate what he did for criticism, but sometimes I feel like he was just a grump to be a grump. Sure. But great burn on them by it, Lynch. I'm a big yes. fan. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that. it's it's perfect. Especially that TV show at the time, right? It was yeah. like the mainstream yeah. review show. So yeah. Right. Unfortunately, this great burn didn't work, and uh, they had a budget of $15 million and a gross of a little bit under $4 million. Mm-hmm. So not ideal. Uh, a fun fact about this movie, and I don't know about the funding. I can't obviously. I can't speak to the funding, but one of the main actors, Balthazar Getty, uh, is the son to the is is a heir to the Getty uh, Oil Foundation uh, company. Oh my god! Um, and I'm I'm assuming the reason he got the job was probably a little bit of funding was thrown their way. <laughs> yeah, by uh, by I the Getty so. Oil Company. Get you an oil heir who can do it both. Absolutely. <laughs> and despite that critical panning, I mean. Uh, uh, looking at it objectively now, I mean, you can see that the movie is really wonderfully composed. Uh, not only does it have that Greek sensibility that you were talking about, mm-hmm. but it also pulls from German expressionist and mm-hmm. French New Wave kind of uh, attacking of the norms. Yes. Uh, thanks to the work of cinematographer Peter Deming. And originally, Lynch wanted to shoot Lost Highway in black and white. Which Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. I always really um, like when artists kind of take like a strong stand on that and every time it gets shot down <laughs> and, uh-huh, you're right uh like there's um that mist movie is 
pretty okay until you watch it in the black and white version. Uh-huh. And it just really covers up some of the, like, CGI and mm. makes it feel a lot more like the classic 50s and 60s horror, which is what it's supposed to be an homage to in the first place. Mm-hmm. But similar to this movie, the studio was like, nah, people just aren't going to go see a black and white movie. And yeah. so they discard it. Uh, there's some great speaking of the cinematography there's some incredible close-ups in this movie like the the close-up oh, yeah. of a Patricia Arquette on the phone is like one of my favorite close-ups of all time yeah the I mean there are a lot of really extreme close-ups too like it's not there it's not just like oh what we're on her face like there'll be like lips fingertips a cigarette like really really close up yeah i feel like uh lynch did what fincher does where like he got as close as he could but fincher was like well i'm just gonna go inside the thing so like you know like it's like getting as close as you can like those blue velvet like the shots going into the ground with the worms and stuff like that right so despite them saying no you can't shoot it in black and white the film was shot in various levels of darkness Uh, Mm -hmm. i don't know if this is something that you noticed but it actually does only feature a handful of daylight scenes. It's mostly yeah. night or interior stuff, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really interesting. I watched it with my with my wife, and she kept complaining about how they wouldn't turn lights on <laughs> throughout <laughs> it. And I was like, well, it's a neo-noir <laughs> film, so yeah. <laughs> but it, it really works. And I really think that this movie works from minute one. Mm-hmm. I, I've mentioned it before, and I'll mention it again. I love a good opening credit sequence. Oh, yes. Yeah, you talked about that with Nick. Yeah, I did. And this is that in spades. I mean... Oh, it's so cool. It's so 90s cool. It's insane. Absolutely. You're zooming along the road at night. Got these big fat sans serif text for the name. Mm -hmm. Takes up the whole screen. Mm -hmm. It's bold. It's in your face. It's just like the movie. It's a perfect tone setter. Mm -hmm. Bowie's crooning to you throughout it. I love I love it. Yeah, it's this like it's this reaction to sort of the what like Tarantino's doing, like with like it's like just you feel like you're gonna get that nineties cool, right? You feel like you're mm-hmm. gonna get like that entire wave that came after Tarantino and then the movie just fu- like it just goes in this like <laughs> full ninety degree turn away from yeah, that. Really pulls the rug out from under you. Yeah. You get this really great, fast paced, frenetic opening sequence and then our first narrative shot is also gorgeous mm-hmm. but it's it's mu- like it's it really slows things down and it's an extreme close-up of bill pullman's face illuminated just by the red of the cherry of his cigarette mm-hmm. it's gorgeous mm-hmm. it's really a beautiful shot and uh yeah just like so many extreme close-ups but they all really work and also that sort of red lighting makes several appearances i mean red yes. is kind of like a constant presence in this movie absolutely yeah the red and the famous lynch red curtains right i mean oh, he yes. he doesn't always use red but he typically does so <laughs> they and they show up here when you know what you like might as well use it. <laughs> there, he, there are so many Lynchisms, and I mean, obviously, but like, there's so many moments where like he uses the same things he always uses, and that's the one of the big, uh, I guess, things against this that that Hebert had was he thought it didn't have it was all surface level, all style over no substance, and I yeah. think if I think if you look at it in the canon of David Lynch, you'll realize that it's this, he's just he's exploring the same things he's always explored, and there's a lot there. I totally agree. Um, and I think that the fact that it is very personal to him, you can kind of see that he it feels like he's putting a lot of himself into this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that he takes from his real life. I, I you know, I was going to talk about this in a little bit, but the house that Fred and Renee live in is actually David Lynch's house. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. I didn't and know that. he used wow, that. Great. It's all his own furniture and everything. Cool. Um, he loves those snake plants. Like he has them. And <laughs> yeah. those like alien looking snake plants that like and the whole thing, like the whole way that the, the place is set up. It's like it feels like you're going to cut yourself on this house. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. With like the weird windows kind of mm-hmm. slotted in there. Everything's angular and sharp and just mm-hmm. not comfortable in any way. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so checks out for David Lynch. <laughs> yep, 100%. Yeah, so Bill Pullman is playing Fred Madison, who's a Los Angeles saxophonist. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> one day, he gets buzzed on his intercom to hear the simple phrase, Dick Laurent is dead. As I mentioned before, this actually happened to David Lynch, or so he claims. Very spooky, very creepy. He looks outside, nobody there. Ooh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> We're also introduced to his wife, Renee, played by Patricia Arquette, and 
just immediately she's in this like femme fatale sort of pose. Uh-huh. She's in a slinky red dress leaned up against the wall, like a film noir detective's office. Like mm-hmm. I was waiting for Pullman to go. That dame walked into my office uh-huh. with bad news written all over her, like white on rice. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Instead, we're treated to the true horror of an atonal sax solo. Oh my, I, when he, and he's wailing on that thing. Oh, he looks like he's sure about is. to explode when he's playing <laughs> that thing. Yeah, I, well, so I think that that it's even right away you're getting this kind of frustration that he feels mm-hmm. uh, just bubbling out, and so he's putting it into his art, and like like you said, he's really wailing on it, and it, it's coming through. It's definitely coming. through. Yeah, and they have that great conversation, which is just every conversation in this movie pretty much is just somebody is throwing somebody else off kilter with their dialogue, and like she <laughs> says, like I'm not going to come to your show tonight, and he's like, what are you going to do? And she says, read. And he goes up to her and just says, read. <laughs> and he's just like, he's like Michael Madsen, like level of gravelly, read. Yeah. You know, and he just like <laughs> digs into it and you're like, oh, this guy does not have a good relationship with this woman. Nope. Holy crap. No, he definitely does not. But he, he does this intense sax solo. And then mm-hmm. a lot of the tiny transitions between scenes are also very cool. Not even just between scenes, but between just like cuts. Mm-hmm. Like right here, he's making a phone call to check in with Renee and it cuts to the receiving line just as his cigarette ignites. Uh-huh. I was like, oh man, that's so cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very stylish movie. I mean, I could see why you would watch it and be like, that's all style and there's nothing there. I, it definitely seems like the kind of thing where if you if you're not on board with it, then you're you're going to find reasons to not like it. Absolutely. But if you approach it with an open mind and you understand that, like, this is David Lynch's style, this is what he does, I think that people will really have a good time with it. And I think that it's not quite as impenetrable as some of his other work. No, I think this um, movie actually, uh, I don't know, the first time I watched it, I felt like the story is pretty convoluted and pretty, and like purposely very like uh, circular and mm-hmm. a little like, and a little meandering. But I think you can, you can understand, I thought, what he was going for pretty quickly by, with the with the first watch of this movie, I don't think it's too difficult to get to get his general gist. Yeah, there's there's a couple of different interpretations of it, but definitely I think that people can watch it and on the first watch through come to their own conclusion about what they think it means at mm-hmm. the very least. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there, there's this phone call and um, Renee does not answer. We're getting a lot of suspicion from yep. Fred. <laughs> yep. And the next morning, Renee finds a VHS tape on their porch containing a short and eerie video of just a zoom in on their house, which she dismisses as must be from a real estate. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great <laughs> cornball David Lynch line right there. Yeah. Where you really like, made me laugh. Yeah, in the in any other director's hands, you'd be like, "Oh, what the, what the hell was that?" <laughs> but in David Lynch, you're just like, "No, you're supposed to laugh at this sort of like really just kind of cliched, jokey line." Yeah, and and he drops that kind of humor in a couple times. I mean, yeah. later when there's jazz on the radio and the guy is like, oh "I like God. that." Yeah, <laughs> I really like that. The dude from from Twin Peaks. Yeah, often. yeah, and it's and so that kind of humor really comes through. I think it's it really works here. Mm-hmm. Renee and Fred try to have sex, but Fred is not able to perform. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she, like, literally just, like, pats his head. Dude, like, he's like, a baby. Okay. Yeah. Um, very, I mean, talk about emasculating on two levels. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. And what an incredibly sexless sex scene or unromantic oh, yeah. or any, there's no passion in All the sound no. cuts out until his sad pathetic little whimper that he makes at the end (laughs) of the sex before she pats him and it's really like you're just embarrassed on his behalf Mm -hmm. and and afterward he tells her that he had a dream about someone who was resembling her but wasn't her Mm -hmm. being attacked in their house Mm -hmm. and he also sees renee's face as that of an old man (laughs) oh and there very very unsettling i just got chills there is (laughs) there is my through line of why i think this is the scariest movie (laughs) Yeah, this this old man, the mystery man, is mm-hmm. the only thing he's ever credited as. Mm-hmm. Is true, like he gets under your skin oh. in a way that is unparalleled. <laughs> yeah, and more tapes start to arrive with the same beginning, but continuing past where it ended. This time, showing uh, Renee and Fred asleep in their bed, and uh, they call the police, but there's not. Really, and I believe they don't. I believe they're mutilated in in the bed too, right? Yeah, uh, it's I hard to that's see. In the next one, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very staticky and grainy, but yeah. they get they get multiple tapes and uh, and they do progress in in more and more gruesome fashion. Mm-hmm. And the police, there's not really any any assistance. But 
during this conversation with the police, Fred mentions something really interesting mm-hmm. that I think is perhaps the kind of the line that this whole movie hinges on. Yeah. Uh, and he says that he hates video cameras mm-hmm. because he likes to remember things the way that he remembers them, not necessarily the way that they actually happen. Uh-huh. The unreliable narrator of his own mind. Absolutely. Yes. And it's it's a great it's in that great exchange with those detectives, which is, has another great uh, lynchism line where he's asking him what he does. Oh, you're a saxophonist. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's like tenor, tenor sax. And he's like, I think he gives the whatever, uh, um, whatever note, you know, or whatever. And the detective taps his ear and goes tone deaf. Yeah. <laughs> just... He also asks him by saying, what's your axe? Yeah, what's your axe? Yeah. <laughs> so a very fun, fun dialogue. There. But but to, to get back to your point, yes, he like right there, right? It's this mm-hmm. guy who is so caught up in his own head that he 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 has to rely on on, you know, his point of view, even if it is not even if he knows that he's an unreliable point of view. Yeah, and so part of why I say that this is uh, a very personal movie for for David Lynch is that I was reading an interview and he actually said that this affectation is his own, that he really dislikes video cameras Mm. because he doesn't like having that kind of permanent reminder that so it's kind of it reminds me a lot of Solaris. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. You know, I haven't. It's one that I've been meaning to watch for a very long time. It's really, really great. And basically... The crux of the story is how can you love anybody, you idiot? You can't even know them. Mm -hmm. All you can see is the mask that they put on to show people. Yeah. And so your own biases impact the way that you interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And David Lynch, apparently, likes that and doesn't he? I mean, this seems very obvious looking at his movies, but kind of this objective truth one way to look at things is obviously something that uh, leaves a distaste in his mouth. And it's cool because, you know, that then like that makes the horror of what the beginning of this movie at least presents is that someone is delivering this guy his worst fear in, a, in some capacities, right? He's, he's sending him videotapes. He's found the th- one of the things this guy likes so little that his wife knows to be like, he does not like those things. And he's this right. person is sending him recordings of himself without his permission directly to his house and being like, look at yourself. Look at you. Look, at, This is what you don't want to look at, you know, yeah, forcing him look to look at your life. Exactly. Like when you look at it from David Lynch's perspective and like take that and you put yourself in those shoes, it really, this whole beginning section of this movie really does take on a very different filter. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and throughout, we haven't even mentioned this, but throughout the sound design, as in all Lynch movies, is just right. insanely terrifying. When he turns the tape on for the first time and it's, clicks onto the TV and like you're watching it from over their shoulder at first, but then it zooms in and the soundtrack completely cuts to just pure Lynchian sound design. And Mm -hmm. it's so terrifying, this brooding, terrifying drone and this, you know, the static of the, of the tape. And then it just cuts out on you. Oh, it's just like, it it just, it just takes you to a place, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very funny. So I like, I enjoyed this movie so much that I actually went and downloaded the soundtrack and the soundtrack is like these great, like you said, Bowie's in it. There's Mm -hmm. smashing pumpkins. There's Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of great stuff. There's a great, great Lou Reed cover. That Lou Reed cover is awesome. I had never heard it and it's it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And in between all of these things is just like these really creepy score moments. Uh huh. Oh, that, (laughs) That's awesome. They put the score in there. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so very, uh, very spooky Mm -hmm. while you're listening to it. Mm -hmm. They basically are not getting any help with these uh, videotapes. And Renee is like, well, we're just going to go to this party. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's thrown by her friend Andy. Mm hmm. And after Fred puts back two double scotches mm-hmm. in the span of like 30 <laughs> seconds, yeah. I was very impressed. It was very good. And this is the guy that likes to remember things the way he remembers them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he he puts these back and then he sees the man whose face is the oh. one he saw on Renee's. This is, this, this is my scene right here. This is the reason I picked this movie because this scene is just so unnerving it's so it's very understandable too because this guy walks in and he just locks on to Fred. Mm-hmm. he walks right up to him and just leers at him mm-hmm. and he says we've met before haven't we Ugh. and 
one thing I thought was really interesting is that he says it very declaratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, we've met before, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Like he's prodding Fred. Right. It's not but a question. Like, it's like a character choice that really changes it for the better. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then having Lynch work with work with this mystery man, mm-hmm. um, who is, by the way, played by uh, Robert his, Blake. Yes, Robert Blake. He uh, he's incredible in it, and working the two of them working together. I think just create this character that is truly horrific. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I just seriously, like I watched this movie and could not stop thinking about this scene for days. I I am. I'm thinking about it still. And I imagine that it'll stick with me for a long, long time because God, he's just so eerie. And the fact that at the party, no one else notices. Yeah. He walks right through. He floats right through the, through the crowd no one pays atten- any attention to him yep. and just instantly creates this off-kilter conversation with we've met each other before haven't we and it's just it, it instantly puts it instantly puts our main character uh Bill Pullman puts him right back foot instantly and he's like no I don't know who you are and then he's and then you know they're 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 back and forthing a little bit he's trying to figure out where he knows him from and the guy says we met at your house and he's <laughs> like I do I don't remember that he's like in fact I'm there right now and I just love Fred's reaction that's fucking crazy, man. It's <laughs> <He's> not wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, how do you react to that? And then he's and then he hands him a cell phone and says, "Call me." And he dials his phone number into it, hands him the phone, the, or sorry, he gives the Bill or Bill Pullman Fred, and Fred dials the number to his house, looks at him incredulously the whole time, and who happens to answer the phone? but the mystery man on the other end. And then they have this conversation that bounces between the version of him on the phone and the version that's standing in front of him back and forth, like weaving in and out and just completely just freezes Fred up. And then the mystery man takes his phone back and leaves after the laugh too, (laughs) the laughter where he gives them that like that insane laugh. And the best part is, it's like la- he's laughing there and through the phone at the same time. In so stereo. Oh, in stereo. It's just, oh, it's so, <laughs> so creepy. I lost my shit completely. Uh-huh. I can't believe it. He says, you invited me in like a damn vampire. And that's that's <laughs> the thing. So it's like, this is like the demon stuff, right? That like, this yeah. is like, this is a demon we're dealing with. I mean, it's, that's my interpretation. We're dealing with like a demonic force. And that's his interpretation as well. Robert Blake, he said that he didn't understand the script at all, but he felt that this guy was the devil. Yes. The big D. Mm-hmm. He's the one. Uh, and boy, does he play it like it. Oh, it's like, and that that's why this movie was so scary to me uh, when I first watched it. I actually had a deep memory of the trailer of this movie as a child. And I remember it coming on TV when I was, when I was younger. So I must have been um, 13. So I wasn't a child. I was a teen, but... Uh, I must have been 13 when this came out. So I was seeing trailers for it. And I remember the two images that stuck with me that always scared me from that trailer. And the one was the opening title, uh, the shot of the car driving in the dark, just down that highway, just careening at a dangerous speed in the middle of the road. Just that, for some reason, was really terrifying to me. And the mystery man's face. Both of those things just were stuck inside of me. So when I rewatched this movie, I had forgotten that I was afraid of that trailer. And I, <laughs> and then I saw his face again and instantly all of that fear of being from when I was, you know, a young child, like floods back, floods back into me. And I just was like, Oh my God. And I felt like Fred for a moment. Right. Like you're, you're I get it. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it's really scary. It's, it's something. really, really scary. It's stuff. Something. And Fred asks Andy, the guy whose party it is, who that is. Mm-hmm. And he says he doesn't know his name, but he's a friend of Dick Laurent's. Mm-hmm. The guy that we just heard, Dick Laurent, is dead. Mm-hmm. And so, terrified, Fred leaves the party with Renee. He checks the house. Nobody there. You're still like, uh, I mean, I guess he could have left in that time. But something right. it's so obvious that something is off here. And there's a there's a great shot before he goes into the house. that he You see the exterior of the house, and there's a... Lynchian flash of bluish light from within mm-hmm. the house as well, which happens a couple times whenever the mystery man arrives in a scene. So there's like this like demonic energy that's being unleashed. So like, was he in there? Maybe. I, yeah. I don't know. And things don't let up. I mean, another tape arrives the next day. Mm-hmm. Fred watches it alone. And to his horror, it shows him hovering over Renee's dismembered body. Yep. And there's some really disorienting cuts here as it like flashes to real life instead of the video mm-hmm. and then the cops are beating him up mm-hmm. and he's sentenced to death for her murder. Mm-hmm. He's on death row. 
and Fred starts having these headaches and visions of the mystery man yep. and the murder and a burning cabin in the desert going in reverse. Oh, <laughs> I love that shot so much because you were looking at it at first and you're like, it's on fire. And then it slowly reassembles itself. And then the, mm-hmm. of course, Lynchy and sound design just, and it sucks yep. back together. Oh, it's so good. And Fred has a seizure in his cell there. And during a cell check, the prison guard finds that the man in Fred's cell is not Fred at all. Right. It is, in fact, Pete Dayton, a uh-huh. young auto mechanic. Yep. <laughs> played by Balthazar Getty, like you said. And, I mean, what a friggin' crazy, crazy scene. Just, can you imagine being in the theater and not having any, maybe having never seen a David Lynch anything, <laughs> and seeing this and being like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Um, no, I can't. Uh, I really uh, yeah. can't. Man, that it's it's crazy. And it's not only is it like this crazy thing happening, it's also pretty scary. Like mm-hmm. the tri- it's uh, Fred is rolling around on the ground screaming and it's he's bloody and there's this impossible fog rolling in from yeah, nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it has that that Lynchian like low frame rate like crazy like almost like stop motiony uh, mm-hmm. stuff going on over top of it and like blending and it's uh, I think it's interesting that the the it comes in from the skylight, right? Yeah. Because there's a there's a theme of like skylights in this, or like light from above, which I don't mm, I don't lot know. Of looking up, a lot of looking up, and like and there's like that great scene before he gets put in jail where he's looking up in his own house through the skylight at the detective, and yeah. then that shot is repeated when he's in jail again, looking up at the light that's the only source of light he has above the bars, which is really cool. It really is. There's a lot of that cool kind of um, synchronicity that mm-hmm. where things repeat themselves, which obviously plays a huge role in the story of this movie. But Absolutely. just the way that it exists in the background of it as well is really great. Mm-hmm. I also really like that the transformation scene done completely in camera. Mm-hmm. It was makeup expert constructed a fake head that was covered with artificial brain matter, cool. which was then intercut with the uh, shots of Pullman. So. I was watching it last night that there was that there's that shot that looks like a like almost like a skull and like a brain splitting apart. Mm-hmm. It actually kind of looks like I don't know if you've because you only watched the first season of Twin Peaks, right? Yeah. And the second season, there's a tree that has a brain on it, which I'm Ugh. which you watch that first <laughs> season and you're like, wait, that's in the second season of Twin Peaks. What the hell happens <laughs> in that show? Yeah, pretty big shift. It's insane. <laughs> uh, and it reminded me a lot of that prop. And I wonder if maybe it was a similar uh a similar artist that made that because it was yeah, maybe. It, it, it just gave me that same that same vibe it's it's very creepy and mm-hmm. nobody knows what's going on no. also i forgot to mention henry rollins is one henry of the rollins is in there it's <laughs> what a great little couple scenes for, for henry rollins it's, yeah uh he gets a fun joke in there yeah good for him yep. henry rollins yeah good for you <laughs> and so yeah so nobody knows what's going on so pete is released into the care of his parents uh in, mm-hmm. which one of them is gary Busey, which is fun mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but he's Gary followed... Busey in like a really cool leather jacket too. Oh yeah, he looks like a badass. He really uh, does. <laughs> uh, and he's followed by the two detectives who are, I guess, just keeping an eye on him to be mm-hmm. like, uh, how the hell did this guy show up in the mm-hmm. jail cell? <laughs> and this is something that I think is interesting because Pete gets out, and uh, yeah, obviously there's a logical reason for why these detectives are following him. But I think there's a fun paranoia that runs throughout this movie about being mm-hmm. watched. And I and obviously in the beginning of the movie, Fred is being watched by someone he doesn't know, and he's being met in at parties by a man who claims <laughs> to know him. And then yes, we get this where he switches into another character, but he's still being watched by people, right? Absolutely. And it's just a cool like through line. And it does it persists through the whole thing, and mm-hmm. it really I think comes to a head in a really interesting way at the yes, end, which we'll yeah. definitely get into. Yes. But Pete goes out with his friends. And they say, which first of all, Giovanni Ribisi is good in old, there. Hell a yeah. nice young Giovanni Ribisi doing his best uh, Green Day uh, <laughs> look. They have like a very Green Day look to him, which is cool. Uh, yeah, they're like a couple of a couple of hoodlums. SoCal, no good. Yeah, SoCal hoodlum punks, right? <laughs> yep. And uh, so he goes out with them, and uh, they say he's been acting strange, going even back to before he was found in the cell. Mm-hmm. He goes back to work, and gangster Mister Eddie. Yes. played by Robert Loggia mm-hmm. in a really, really awesome role, takes Pete for a drive to fix his car. Mm-hmm. During this ride, Pete sees him oh my force God. a tailgater off the road and kick the absolute <laughs> crap out of him. <laughs> and the whole time screaming road fatality facts and statistics yes. <laughs> at him. Like very by the textbook road fatality facts. 
bags. Yeah. How many car lengths do you need <laughs> yeah. to pack? 50,000 people die in car accidents a year. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so, again, such Lynchian humor. Just this completely absurd, dry humor. It's so beautiful. It is, but... But it's it, terrifying, too, at the same time. Exactly. Because it kind of shifts to, like, it's long. Right. And right. I mean this guy is just sobbing on the ground. Yeah, the cutaway, the when they drive off leaving the man that he's beaten on the road, he's wailing for yeah. for a long time. Really, it's very unnerving. And I love and, and it's fun to see, right, like that you're you're getting introduced to this character who we've heard about from the very beginning of this movie, and you get to see how his brain has this weird moral like mm-hmm. line that he's created that isn't real where he goes I'm allowed to commit violence because this person broke this thing that I think is bad, right? right? The the noble gangster. Yes, yes, exactly. Robert Loggia just really has this intensity that I oh, adore. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And David Lynch said that Loggia actually wanted to play Frank Booth in Blue Velvet. Oh, really? And, yeah, and that he waited to audition for three hours before Lynch told him that Hopper had been cast days ago. Oh, <laughs> And so Loja launched into this profanity-laden rant about him mm-hmm. or about being forced to wait. And years later, Lynch remembered it and he was he reached out directly. He didn't make him audition. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> beautiful. What a beautiful thing. That's great. That yeah, that's good for him. Good for you. Yeah, exactly. Good for him. I can't <laughs> imagine Hopper not being in Blue Velvet, but if if it had been swapped, I feel like if the universes jumped you know, if we went from this Berenstein universe to the Berenstein universe <laughs> where Robert Loja was in that movie, uh-huh. I don't think I would feel any bit of offness, you know? Yeah. No, it, it definitely has the same kind of uh, intensity yes. to them. Yes. And uh, really, really great stuff. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Eddie drops Pete back at the garage and the tale on Pete reveals that Mr. Eddie is, in fact, the Dick Laurent that we've heard so much about. Mm. And the next morning... There's this uh, jazz scene that I mentioned earlier on the radio, and mm-hmm. Pete is working on in he's working in the garage, and this jazz really has a distinctly negative effect on yes, it. <laughs> and a, and a distinctly familiar se- uh, solo as well, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Uh, I think is fun because this is where the movie starts to fold in on itself time wise because it this movie I, in even in the um uh, the Wikipedia page it's been described as like a Mobius strip right. Where mm-hmm. like it's like a almost like a figure eight that's constantly repeating, and we'll get to the end where it kind of does that. But there's moments in the middle, right, where it kind of connects again, yeah. where it like the hit, dip, yeah, the, the dip, dip the it. dip where it comes back together, and this is kind of one of those moments, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it is. And another one is right on its tail because Mr. Eddie brings his Cadillac back, mm-hmm. and he brings with him his uh, his mistress Alice Wakefield, who's mm-hmm. played by you guessed it. Patricia Arquette. Yep. But <laughs> she's blonde now. Yeah, exactly. Patricia Arquette too. We're yep. blonde now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is when that Lou Reed cover plays and again, it's really What a great sequence. I love that sequence. That's like the nineties cool sequence, right? Yeah, and they let it they let the song play for a pretty long time. Yeah. Which it, I like as well. Yeah, it rides. It goes you know, they they like let you realize what song you're hearing, right? But you're not hearing the original version of it. And then Very they, much like the story itself, eh, right? Exactly. And then you get to that <laughs> chorus that you know so familiar, you know, is so familiar to you, and then you're done, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and Alice comes back later and invites Pete to dinner, and this affair between them starts. But she starts to fear that Mr. Eddie suspects them, and so the two of them concoct a scheme to rob her friend Andy and leave town. Mm-hmm. Although I, I say that the two of them do it, but really she's like, "Hey, let's do this." In and pure like, femme fatale okay. fashion, right? Yep, exactly. Uh, led down the primrose path uh, to his doom. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alice also reveals to Pete that Mr. Eddie is actually a... Uh, so she also tells him that he's Dick Laurent. Or mm-hmm. no, she says it. He, this is his first time hearing it, but our second time hearing yes. it. Yes. And she tells him that he's an amateur porn producer. Mm-hmm. And this really awful scene where she reveals that he once made her strip at gunpoint. Oh, yeah. So disturbing. Uh, it's very, and, it's about, I think it's on par with a lot of the more disturbing scenes of Blue Velvet where, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. we see some pretty and, pretty unsexual scenes in there. Right, and I, I think that a lot of that has to, it hinges on that intensity brought by 
Robert Loja mm-hmm. and bought by Dennis Hopper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you have these guys who really commit to the intensity of the villain mm-hmm. and kind of lean into that, that I, I don't, I don't even know the rigidity of it. Yeah. It, it really, it takes on another level, I think. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Pete gets a phone call from Mr. Eddie and the mystery man Mm -hmm. replicating parts of the conversation that he had with Frank. Right. Many of the lines are the same, except for one great line, which I wrote down and I have to, I have to read because I think it actually, um, I think it explains the movie a little bit to a certain extent. I think it kind of is thesis of the movie. And it's, he says to him, instead of handing him the phone, obviously to to have him call himself, he just totally breaks from the conversation they're having. And the mystery man says to, to, to Pete, he says, in the East, the Far East, when a person is sentenced to death, they're sent to a place where they can't escape, never knowing when an executioner may step up behind them and fire a bullet into the back of their head. Wow. It's just a creepy, what a creepy thing to have said to you. You're just sitting, <laughs> you're like, first off, you're already talking to this guy who you think know, you know knows that you're having an affair with his mistress. Right. And, he, and he's an extremely violent person. You saw that. And then he hands the phone to someone else he's standing next to who you don't know, who <laughs> gives you that unnerving opening line of, we've met before, haven't we? And then he says this to you, which sounds obviously like a death threat. But also, mm-hmm. I think is I, I, and we'll, we can reloop back to the end of this. Um, but I think, I, I think this is, it kind of fuels what I think is my theory for what the movie's about. And we'll get back to, we'll well, get back to I that. I think I know where you're going. And I think that our interpretations may be different. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Which I, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to uh, where we, where we wind up with this. Awesome. So Pete decides that despite this phone call, he's going to go along with Alice's plan. And he ambushes Andy, but accidentally kills him slash Andy kills himself yes. lunging at Pete. Uh-huh. And what a kill. God, this is like <laughs> the grossest thing I've seen in a long time. It's he smashes uh, him his face into the corner of the table, uh, and it just like goes halfway into his head. It almost scalps him. Ugh. Oh, grotesque! And, and Alice is completely unaffected. Oh, I love that, and like that—that's something I love through this too. This whole movie is this sort of disaffected '90s, like modern person, you know, modern lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And like that's one hundred percent it. And it's I almost feel like a reaction to the violence of of like the films at the time that were coming mm-hmm. out. Again, the, the Tarantino type films. Sure. Um, where there was like this disaffected cool to this extremely disgusting violence that's <laughs> that's unfolding. Sure. I mean, just think about Reservoir Dogs with the you know the stuck in the middle with you scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. This sort of like cool, like almost like yeah, like this stylization and this coolness of mm-hmm. extreme grotesque murder. <laughs> and I, dude, I love that. Like the the makeup there is so good. Um, oh, yeah. for that kill is just like, and it's just like watching this movie again last night. I got, I, I gotta admit, I mean, like I was watching it, and like the beginning of the movie is so, so scary to me. And then you get into the Balthazar Getty portion of it, the Pete portion, and it drops back a lot. You don't get, mm-hmm. a, you don't even get any of that sort of dread. Like there's a little bit of moments of dread before they do this murder. Uh, there's a great scene where I think it's Marilyn Manson is playing. And it cuts to an extreme close-up of uh, Pete's light in his room and all the bugs dying under the bulb inside of it. And again, (laughs) light coming from above and just destroying the creatures below it. And, like, I feel like there's, like, you know, there's some thematic resonance to that. And he's looking up at a light above him, a la Fred at the beginning of the movie. Um, Anyways, uh, yeah, like like, I felt like it drops back from that horror a little bit. And I got to say, like, coming on a show about horror movies, I was like, oh, crap, did I pick a movie that wasn't really that horror? But this movie, at this point, when you get to this murder, picks right back up into, like, some insane horror. I Absolutely. think did did I can't remember. Does the Rammstein song begin? I think the Rammstein song is playing before this murder happens, right? Yeah, I think it is, but it's like it's like right in the lead up. To yes, it. right, and it, and it it carries out throughout the end of the movie. But I love like that era. So I'm not a huge industrial music fan, or or even <laughs> or or like metal or anything like that. But like I love that era of like electronic demonic <laughs> metal right. music that was coming out, and this Rammstein song is like in German, but it sounds like there's some like Latin stuff he's saying as well, and it has like. I, the other movie that I was considering bringing onto this show was Eyes Wide Shut, which is another movie that features a lot of demonic imagery and stuff like mm-hmm. that, satanic imagery. And like that flickering movie, the pornography, you know, expanded on a wall, on a massive wall. And this, this demonic metal music playing, just filling yeah. the soundtrack is just so 
oh, so jarring to me. And then you see this oh, yeah. murder, right? Yeah, it's it's awful. Like it, the it's it like you said, it really goes into horror in such a sudden shift where mm-hmm. it feels like we see the tail end of Fred, and he's already at this point mm-hmm. when we join his story. Yes. Yes. And so we like th- this is everything else has been the lead up to it where everything is going great for Pete. You know, he has this great uh, hot and heavy affair going. Mm-hmm. He's got a job that's happy to welcome him back after mm-hmm. randomly showing up in jail. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just uh, everything is coming up, Pete. <laughs> and, and you know what? I thought about that watching the movie last night because you see the impotence of Fred at the beginning, right? And right. His, his impotent rage that he has inside of him. And he he gets put into this young, virile body, right? Where women are desiring him. To doc, uh, one of the detectives that's following Pete, Pete comments on the amount he's having <laughs> sex, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, he does. Uh, and, and it is frequent. I mean, it's the sex that he has is very much a counterpoint to Fred's yes. in that... It's very uh, like intense and and like I said, hot and heavy. And it's yeah. with Rene- it's with Alice and also with his girlfriend as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, um, and it's it's definitely meant to be like draw a counterpoint between the two of them. Absolutely, yeah. But that's he- a great point that he's now now when we get to this point where this murder occurs, Pete has reached the point of paranoia. Mm-hmm. and impotence and lack of control and like and poor choices that <laughs> that pete kind of has or sorry that uh, fred at the beginning that we see uh has kind of we picked up in media res right right exactly and pete notices a photograph showing alice and renee together mm-hmm. and his vision starts to swim and he starts gushing blood out of his nose mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, oh my god pete yeah <laughs> And they get in the car to leave, and they arrive at this empty cabin in the desert, mm-hmm. the one that we saw in the visions before. Mm-hmm. And they start to have sex outside on the sand. What and, a sequence. What a sex sequence. Oh, yeah. And right as right as he's about to, to finish, Alice whispers into his ear, you'll never have me. Uh-huh. And she gets up, and she just disappears into the cabin. Yep. Holy cow. Yeah. What it like, yeah, it's just this... Again, and if this is you know, if Fred and Peter are the same person, right? Mm-hmm. What a what a what a like moment where he thinks he's finally gotten control, right? Yeah. Only to be shot back down and cut back down right at the end. Made all the worse by the fact that it is, for all intents and purposes, his wife again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pete actually, like you said, he's reached the same point, and so he transforms back into Fred. Yep. And he heads into the cabin, which. I'm going to say it looks prepped for murder. Yes. <laughs> oh, and there's another great scary scene. Uh, absolutely prepped for murder. The, the two couches, right? And one's like yeah. covered in like plastic pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Very creepy. Incredibly <laughs> creepy. Uh, there's the great uh, scene right before Fred, when he turns back into Fred, walks into the thing. He looks at the car that they arrived in. Mm-hmm. And out of the dark rear of the car appears the mystery man's head as he leans forward. And they make eye contact. And then you hear... I'm over here. And he looks to the right and the mystery man uh. is standing in front of the <laughs> the cabin and he's just like, oh, can this guy get any creepier? It's insane. It's uh, it's, such it's a, so crazy. Oh. And as soon as Fred gets into the cabin, there's a really cool panning shot where the mystery man is just a blur in the middle. Oh, that's so good. And the mystery man pulls out a video camera mm-hmm. and he starts filming mm-hmm. and chasing Fred with it. Yep. Oh, and, and that shot where he's running at the car, so Fred gets into the car to, to try and get away, turns the mm-hmm. car on, and the mystery man is running at him with this very long, very aggressive-looking camera, and he just reaches out a dead, cold, white hand to reach at him at the last second as Fred ooh. pulls away, and just, ooh, another one of those moments where just the image of that is like a, the purest nightmare. It's, it is a nightmare committed to film, and it's insane how, how close he gets to like what a real nightmare feels like. Yeah, and... I mean, just to give people kind of an idea of how this guy looks, like, he's this shorter, older guy, but mm-hmm. his hair is cut real short and parted in the middle, mm-hmm. and he's got this white kabuki makeup yes. yeah. all over him, and it, like, makes his mouth so vivid, mm-hmm. and, like, you just really focus on what he's saying, and it's... Ugh. 
oh, just awful in the best way. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and so he chases Fred. Like you said, Fred gets into the car and he drives off and he goes to the Lost Highway Hotel mm-hmm. uh, where he finds Mr. Eddie and Renee having sex. Mm-hmm. And the interior shots of the Lost Highway Hotel were filmed at a supposedly haunted hotel in Death Valley. Oh, so that's cool. Go. Yeah, fun fact. <laughs> um, and Renee leaves and Fred kidnaps Mr. Eddie. Mm-hmm. But in the struggle, loses the upper hand. Yep. But the mystery man from off screen, very funny little, like, very low angle. Yes. <laughs> he uh, he yeah. hands him a knife from off Yeah, what a weird t- – because, like, yeah, like, Fred is laying there being choked by by Dick Laurent, and, you, and it looks like he's lost it, right? And he mm-hmm. puts out his hand as if knowing to put his yeah. hand out, right? Like, he just reaches his hand out, palm upward, and, out, yes, out of the dark, uh, the mystery man's white, creepy hand hands him a violent – combat knife (laughs) (laughs) yeah fred without hesitation reaches up slits mr eddie uh, slash dick laurent's throat Mm -hmm. and he like god the scene where he's just like gurgling blood yeah and and the mystery man hands him like a tiny little tv Mm -hmm. that like cranks up to power it and it's it's another video of them right there, and he sees. I love that. Yes, it cuts back. Oh. It does the same thing, right? Where like he watches this sequence on this on this tape player of like him watching porn with Alice, and and in having this porn party at Andy's house, and it's creepy. Right. We see Marilyn Manson and Twiggy there. <laughs> They're hanging out, <laughs> uh, and like there's this really creepy like snuffish style porn film playing, and it cuts to that last shot. And it's the shot of Fred and the mystery man looking down at him on the camera, which he looks up to see is the exact shot we're seeing in the movie. But I love that again, like that, like I'm inside of your house, uh, you know, like this, like this, yeah. this, this, this uh, secular, you know, like loop and this control over like time and space that this mystery man has. Right. <laughs> it's so scary. Yeah. <laughs> and he sees the mystery man shoot him dead. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he does. Yep. And he then whispers something to Fred before disappearing. Mm-hmm. And later, the police are at the house investigating Andy's death. Yep. And Alice is missing from the photo. Mm-hmm. But the police recognize Renee as Fred's wife. Yes. This is a lead for them. And so they go to Fred's house. Fred also went to Fred's house. Mm-hmm. Fred goes up to the door. Buzzes the intercom and says, Dick Laurent is dead. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And thus the strip connects back together, right? (laughs) It sure does. But then you're you're sitting there and you're like, wait, but that doesn't make any sense because the timing doesn't work for things. Right. Anyways, but yeah. God, it just, you have to sit with it and like really chew on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're like, oh, man, how does, how does this timeline play out? Right. they don't give you that much time to mull it over because no. the two detectives are following up on this picture. They drive up to the house. Fred runs back to his car and drives off with the detectives in hot pursuit. It starts out as a daytime scene. Yeah. But Fred starts convulsing and mm-hmm. he's changing and screaming in his car. Yep. And it's a very dramatic shift to mm-hmm. a dark to the darkened highway from the beginning. Yeah. Which I should also mention was also in the previous transformation scene where he turned into Pete. Oh, that's right. It was in there. I forgot that it was in there. Yeah. And uh, yes. And so Fred is, he's convulsing and he's speeding and, and we get this same thing that we see at the very beginning at the very end of the movie. So it's a, like a double mm-hmm. Mobius strip. <laughs> right. And like literally the beginning and the end of the film can be put up next to each other. Right. And they're the same thing mm-hmm. and you could loop it back right into itself. Right. Right. And so I'm going to, I'm going to use this as the segue into talking about our interpretation. Okay. Here. Okay. Okay. Here's what I think. And then okay. you tell me what you think. Sure. So I think that the highway shows up every time a new reality starts and it happens again at the end. Mm. Uh, I know that some people think that it's him dying by electric chair, but I think that it's him fighting against the deterioration of his Pete fantasy. Okay. And creating a new life in the jail cell to again, assuage his guilt. Mm, Okay. Because so films and camera are, they very much represent truth as per Fred's own statement. Yes. And it's really interesting to me that he's so afraid of it at the end and he runs away from them. And the mystery man, I think, is his own knowledge of the truth, Mm -hmm. indicating that the whole thing is a fantasy that he concocted to deal with this relationship. The fact that 
this truth is chasing him. It has the actual evidence of it. Mm -hmm. And through this fantasy, he's able to escape jail, have a second chance at a loving relationship with his wife in the form of Alice. Yep. And Mr. Eddie is the personification of his frustration being in a relationship with Alice and standing between him and them. Okay. But even after running away together, that frustration creeps back in. Yep. Alice whispers, you'll never have me right into Pete's ear before mm-hmm. leaving him high and dry. And it isn't enough simply to run away and ignore the source of this frustration. Mm-hmm. So he goes and he kills Dick Laurent. Right. He takes out he takes out whatever measure of p- uh, power and, and like revenge that he can. Right. Right. But so here. So basically, I, I think that this whole thing represents him running away from the truth. But here's where the kicker comes in. Mm-hmm. I think that nothing in this movie actually happens. Okay. Because we get the highway scene immediately. Right. And that's the beginning of the first fiction. Okay. And he's conjuring up this fiction as a coping mechanism because he did kill his wife for cheating on him. Okay. And this beginning part, the part with Fred starts to deteriorate when he gets the tape and talks to the mystery man. And so what people think is that the first fantasy, the Pete life, yeah. is actually already the second layer deep. Okay. And the, and the ending is him going another level down because the same kind of deterioration of this fantasy life that happens in the Fred or in the Pete one happens at the end of the Fred one. Mm-hmm. So I think that makes a lot of sense because if you try to like again, if you try to like look at the timeline of what happened, like Andy dies before Mister Eddie dies, but mm-hmm. in the first fantasy that you're talking about, there's Andy is alive when he is told Dick Laurent is dead. Right. And he's like, that can't be, he can't be dead. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. not possible. That's It's very interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I just think that if that's the way that it is, that this, stru- the structure that it's, it has is so interesting because it lets us explore two different horrors that are very different from each other. Mm-hmm. That of the working class noir world mm-hmm. filled with hypersexuality, violence, cynicism, mm-hmm. and that of the uh, banal, grounded upper class world of Frank, right. full of marital distrust, emotional distance, impotence. Mm-hmm. And so this constant coming back to his own failures and his own knowledge of what he did because yep. of of this frustration i think is the whole movie and so yeah so i think literally not nothing happens <laughs> that's cool that's a really cool theory i I, th- I really like what you said about the upper class of of uh fred versus the kind of like uh cyn- the cynical like teen or young adult angstiness of the of the ne- right. of the noir part uh, i think that's interesting because one, I think that that segment of the movie is very Lynchian, and it's, it touches in a lot of his touches in a lot of what he explores in Blue Velvet, and he explores in Twin Peaks, which is like the budding up of extremely the dark side of human nature, just like hidden right beneath the veneer of society, right? Like right. that's kind right. of his thesis for those those <laughs> things, right? Sure, yeah. right. But like the beginning part, like you're saying, I, I, I that's the part that's the most. It's very Lynch, but it doesn't feel like what he normally explores it feels devoid of any sort of happiness or americana you know the things that you typically expect from his movies yeah i think i think that that might be part of him pulling from his own life and putting him in his own house and saying that this is a story that happened to him yes yeah yeah definitely I love, and you know, there's a like fun little detail that I'd noticed while watching it the second time that I just was a, a, kind of a throwaway line or kind of something that I just thought about, but you're bringing in um, class stuff. And I think it's really interesting that these ri- this rich guy who's obviously got enough money to be a, a, a musician, right? And he has this, this scary thing happen to him, but no crime really happened. And he calls the police and the police... They do a, they stay hang out for a while. <laughs> and they and they do a lot of searching. They get up on his roof. They talk uh-huh. to him. And he's like, when they're leaving, they hand him his cards and they're like, Thanks for thanks for coming. This is what we do, they say yeah. to him. Which is a very unpolice like thing, I feel like. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting that in the Balthazar Getty Pete portion of it, he doesn't do anything wrong. And the police are like treating him like he's a criminal the entire time following him around. And he's like what we can assume is like, I don't know if they're poor. I wouldn't say their house looks pretty nice and everything right. like that, but like they're not as affluent as these, these uh, first characters that we were introduced to. So I think there yeah, might be their wrong side of the tracks kind of guys. Yeah, exactly. There's just something like interesting about that. I don't know. It was something that I thought of and you bring that up and it kind of makes me think about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I'd have to spend some more time ruminating on that, but I think it's <laughs> a, you know, it's just a, an interesting connection that I, I know I didn't expect you to, 
to make with that, which is cool. Well, there you go. All right. So hit me with your interpretation. Mine's far simpler. I mean, I'd have to watch it again. But I really think that when the mystery man tells him that, I feel like this is like a Jacob's Laddery type death experience. I almost feel like he's just in hell or a nightmare. Uh, maybe maybe he's insane, um, <laughs> possibly. Yeah. Um, any of the above. Yeah. Any of the above. But I feel like <laughs> I feel like he's trapped in um, in a in a in a death sentence, right? And I think he's just like in a in a hellscape. Right. where this mystery man is tormenting him because the mystery man seems to like he's the, he has something to do with Alice, right? Yeah. Because he gets very angry when she's referred to as Alice when uh, Fred confronts him in the cabin. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's like a little bit of like she's a femme fatale, right? Like like because this is a this is a neo noir film, right? It is playing yeah, off of that absolutely. like the femme fatale that shows up and drags this guy into a into a mess that he never expected very deliberate and so i think that like that's happening in the beginning and it's happening at the end as well um and i i i I don't know i just feel like that in the east the far east quote is just kind of like he's waiting for the other shoe to drop constantly but he never will get that he's going to constantly repeat this cycle of like living these two lives of impotence and being that's hell yeah yeah (laughs) i think it's just like this like hellish torture that this this person is trapped within that's just my vibe of it no i definitely see that as well and and uh, you know maybe mine is uh the tinfoil uh crackpot <laughs> i think hey I, I think you have a lot of evidence there for what you said i think it's a, i think it's great um so we've kind of reached the point now where uh we're gonna sum up for everyone paul why this is the best horror movie ever made and so i'll let you uh take this one first uh i i mean for me uh, I, as we talked about at the beginning of this, I was not a slasher fan. I was not, and I like those movies now as, as an adult. I can enjoy them for what they are and what they're attempting to do. But what really scares me is um, things that I feel like could actually happen to me. Not that I believe in demons or curses or anything like that, <laughs> but like this feels like, an, as you know, my theory is that this is a, a hell that this person's caught in. Uh, I feel like, you know. If, if this is insanity or this is some sort of uh, demonic afterlife that this person is trapped in, it feels like something that like exists in the realm of in a realm that we don't understand as humans or can't comprehend right. and could be real. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that surrealism that David Lynch plays with really helps to capture that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, yeah, it feels like a nightmare. And I think that if you can make me experience a nightmare in my waking life, that is one of the scariest things because it it does what a nightmare does. It doesn't obey logic or physical laws, right? It just completely lives within its own rules and reality and you're trapped inside of it for this two hours that this movie takes you on. So it just, it scares the hell out of me. And that mystery man's face will constantly be one of the most scary images I've ever seen. Yeah. So to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think you hit the nail on the head. It sort of transcends logic. Mm -hmm. It's so funny to me that those reviews call it style over substance. When I think that, first of all, it has great style, Mm -hmm. but then also there is so much to it where you can really like think about it and interpret it in your own way. And this sort of dreamlike state that you're kept in is so much scarier. You know, with stuff like Scream, you can follow the path and it's a great time, mm-hmm. but ultimately there's not, you don't get anything to interpret out of it. It's just, this is a story that you get to enjoy and at the end it's over. Yes. But with something like this, you don't get answers just spoon fed to you. Yeah. You This impossible stuff happens and you're constantly kept off balance and it lets you sit with this movie in a way that I don't think a lot of other movies let you. Agreed. And so to me, that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Awesome. Paul, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was a wonderful time, and we've reached now the plug section. So social, podcasts, shows, hit the people with uh, where they can find you. Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Paul Ritchie, R-I-T-C-H-E-Y is how my last name is spelled. And you can find me on a show called Continue on YouTube where I play video games. It's very silly and very goofy, and there is no dissection of film like this on it. <laughs> it is very much so a goof-off show, but it's a lot of fun. It is. Like I said to Nick, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the show to begin oh, with, thanks. and so uh, yeah, I definitely encourage people to check it out. It's very silly. It's very silly yeah. and very fun. If you like to, if you like hanging out with your friends and playing video games, uh, that's the vibe we go for, and I think we we get there and then i also have two podcasts that i'd like to plug one would be uh pretend friends which is a role-playing game podcast where we uh play a system called space kings which uses a deck of playing cards and it's 
absolute insanity and it's just improv craziness uh and we create a, a bunch of really fun stories in that world and then i have as we mentioned at the beginning of this a podcast called Goosebuds, where we review the works of rl stein as adults and give them the hard-hitting critique they deserve <laughs> they don't pull any punches on that show which we i really not. admire we do not <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely go check those things out. I really like um, Pretend Friends, especially because as much as I like D&D, you throw a stone and you'll hit a and d podcast. Right, <laughs> so right. The fact that you guys use a different system is a lot of fun, and uh, you get to explore space and stuff, and that's that's fun. It's great. And yeah, Goosebuds, I'm a big fan of as well. So definitely Thanks. go see Paul on all of those things. You can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. The show is Little Horror PHL. That's on Twitter, Instagram, and facebook um we have merch at t public you can find us on there there's a fun gritty as chucky in child's play paul <laughs> oh all, my love and my fears are coming together <laughs> yes truly uh a rock and a hard place oh and i don't know what to it. do with my emotions right now <laughs> but uh but yeah so go and check those out and uh if you like the show support it with a fun t-shirt and uh that's that's it for me so yeah thanks again paul and uh bye everyone thanks for having me bye bye